Good morning. We'll be reading from 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Well, it must have been around about the fall of 1997. I was a sophomore at Georgia Tech, and a friend of mine in our Campus Crusade group asked me if I would join him in passing out Bibles outside the student center. It wasn't my idea. I had never done that before, but I said, sure, let's do it. So uh, we showed up there at 11 a.m. at the Campanile outside the student center with boxes of Bibles. Uh, Between 11 and 12 at Georgia Tech, nobody has classes. So thousands of students are pressing into the student center to uh, check their mail, eat lunch, and uh, they're moving by pretty quickly. So there we were. We prepped ourselves with a short statement. If we happened to have more than just a moment with with a passing student, we'd say, you know, many of the best minds of the past several hundred years have, have at least thought the Bible worthy of their consideration, shouldn't you? So we were ready. We wanted to have conversations. We hoped to be able to share the gospel and at least get the word of God into the hands of students. I was inexperienced. I was nervous. I was eager to learn about evangelism, though, and I wanted to be used of the Lord. I still remember the scoffing looks 20 years later. One girl, she walked by, she took the Bible, she looked at it, she gave it right back. She said, "Uh, wrong religion. I'm not making fun of her, that's just the way she said it. Uh, But but it's kind of like, you idiot, you know, how dare you try to give this to me? There was another guy, he walked by, he saw what we were doing, and with a look of total disgust, he said, go to hell. The hour passed, the crowd died down, Uh, we headed into the student center ourselves, and I I remember looking to the right, there was a garbage bin full of dozens of Bibles. And so we went around the place fishing Bibles out of trash cans. Boy, did I get an education that day. Now to be fair, we passed out hundreds of Bibles that day, and most students took them without incident, and I trust the Lord spoke through his word as many of those students took the Bible back to their dorm room and actually began to read it. But the day was marked as well with a crystal clear understanding that many students despised me for passing out those Bibles. I was stunned and surprised and felt like something very strange had just happened to me. But such is life as an elect exile in a hostile world. Peter continues this much-needed instruction to the church on how to suffer well in the midst of persecution in our passage today. He's been on this topic of suffering as a Christian since chapter 3, verse 13. 
And the passage last week spoke to the church and how we ought to serve and love one another even as the sound of bombs dropping outside you know, might be heard in the distance. We saw that the, the end of all things is at hand. Everything's been done. We're in the last leg of the, ra- the race until Christ returns. Until then, there's a fiery trial to endure. And Peter tells us how we should respond. So this fiery trial that he speaks of is persecution in particular. Um, how do I know that? Well, it's true that you don't see the word persecution in the text, but you do see there in verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian. It's, a, it's of a certain kind. It's verbal and social. It's not physical. There's no indication in the entire letter that uh, Peter's audience is undergoing physical persecution per se, like imprisonment or torture or execution. It was rather verbal abuse and social mistreatment. I remember back in verse 4, they malign you. Chapter 3, verse 16, when you are slandered. Chapter 3, verse 9, do not repay reviling for reviling. Or chapter 2, verse 12, when they speak against you as evildoers. Right here in the passage itself, verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ. So the persecution being experienced here came in the form of verbal attacks and social pressure. And this speaks right to where we are, right, in our own cultural moment. So this word is for us. You think back on Jesus' words, Luke 6, 22, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That's the kind of suffering Peter has in mind here. That's the fiery trial. I think you could break the passage up into three parts, verses 12 through 14 and then 15 to 18, and then finally verse 19, which I think is a summary statement of the entire passage, maybe of the entire letter. So our main question is, how should we respond to the fiery trial of persecution? Peter says, number one, don't be surprised, but rejoice. He says, don't suffer for sin, but for Christ. And finally, entrust yourself to God. So first, In the face of persecution, don't be surprised, but rejoice. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. So when you're hated and despised and insulted and vilified and your reputation is ruined for the name of Christ, don't be surprised. Don't be alarmed. Don't be emotionally undone. Don't be disturbed. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 14, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. You know, for most of us, the greatest fear we have in evangelism is the fear of rejection. I sympathize with that. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. Vicious words hurt. Social exclusion is painful. Words go deep. But note how Peter addresses them. He says, beloved, beloved. It's like he's saying, brothers and sisters scattered across Asia Minor, I love you. As a fellow elder, I love you. But more importantly, you are loved by God. This fiery test, it's, it's a trial, it's, it's a test. You see those three little words, to test you. And who's doing the testing? Well, God is, the one who loves them. The one upon whom we can cast all our anxieties because he cares for us. Something strange and out of the blue is not happening to you here. No, it's designed and governed by God himself. 
We've already seen this language of being tested by fire before, back in chapter 1. Why are we grieved by various trials? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this fiery trial is a refining fire according to the will of God for our spiritual good and for the glory of God. Don't be surprised by what's happening. So you know the knee-jerk reaction we often have to a trial is to begin to question God's love for us. We're so surprised and shell-shocked we think God's left me. I'm not sure where he is in this. So example, so you're at work and they want you to lie, but you refuse. And, and that behavior is interpreted as disloyalty to the company. And so they find a way to get rid of you. And that's, that's going to bring a world of hurt to you. That you. You may be recovering financially for years. And when you're in the vice grip of that trial, you'll be tempted to think that God doesn't love you, that he's abandoned you. Your trials, though, like these, they don't indicate God's absence, but his presence Your integrity was born out of Christian conviction. You had a far greater fear of displeasing your heavenly father than of displeasing men. So the pain coming back your way means you are sharing in Christ's sufferings and the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. God is with you in that trial in a deeper way than you know. Remember that you are a beloved child of God. Just imagine it. You have the favor of God himself. Somebody said, why worry about the opinions of the peasants when you have the honor of the king? You know, the other reason we ought not be surprised when we're made to suffer for Christ is because the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We pick that up later in chapter 5. Experiencing persecution is what happens to Christians. It's just what happens to us. Paul tells Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Peter says, dear ones, don't be surprised. Don't consider this as unexpected or unnatural. God loves you, and this stuff is happening to the church all over the world. Instead, you ought to rejoice. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So the Greek word there behind rejoice, uh, it means rejoice with great spiritual rejoicing. Uh, Other uh, secular Greek writers of the time, they don't don't use that verb. It doesn't doesn't show up. Uh, But it speaks to a, a deep spiritual joy. Mary uses it in her song of praise. She says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So do you see, there is a way that God wants you to respond to the suffering of persecution. He says, rejoice. We should sing in prison like Paul and Silas. Does that mean that the shackles on their arms and their ankles didn't hurt? No. And their singing didn't protect them from the vermin on the floor either. We are grieved by various trials. So that grief is real. But there is a mysterious, indomitable joy and comfort that is running through the pain where we say, no, I have not seen him, but I love him. And no, I do not see him now, but I believe in him. 
And I rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. If he is lifted up in the eyes of wicked men because of my suffering, then so be it. To share in part with my Lord the kind of suffering he himself endured, I take as a great honor. It only fuses my friendship with him all the more. If I can only be like him, even in my suffering, I take that as a great privilege. That should be our perspective. So to share Christ's sufferings, just ponder that. To partake, to picture, to identify with the Lord, even in his sufferings, that ought to be something that Christians desire to do. Where my captain goes, I go too, that I might follow in his footsteps. So this sharing in his sufferings, it's it's not an improvement upon his atonement. It's not like we contribute something that's lacking in Christ's death upon the cross. I know Paul uses language like that elsewhere. You have to interpret that carefully. Uh, Here, Peter is saying our union with him by faith should be demonstrated in our suffering for his sake. Our suffering pictures his for our joy and his glory and as a testimony to, to a watching world. And this is an amazing thought. Your joy in Christ will only be amplified by your sufferings. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So persecution, as counterintuitive as it might seem, actually ignites uh, joy in the heart of a Christian rather than than dampens it. And what's, what's this logical connection between rejoicing and suffering now so that You can rejoice when Christ's glory is revealed. Did you see that in verse 13? And what's the connection there? How does that fit together? Well, if I suffer joyfully now, that demonstrates that that I will joyfully be found with him in the end. A willingness to suffer for Christ is part of the evidence that I actually belong to him. Our trials prove the genuineness of our faith. So the way you respond to suffering now reveals whether you belong to God at all. Because no joy now means no joy then when Christ returns. If all you do is groan now, then you will be disappointed then. Now hear me right. Is there groaning in suffering? But You bet there is. Uh, Peter says that the, the whole creation is groaning, uh, awaiting our redemption the redemption of our bodies, but it's a hope-filled groaning, sparkling with joy. So Peter tells us to rejoice in the face of persecution. It's the mystery of Christian contentment, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as Paul put it. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So some of you might be thinking, so I should go looking for trouble that I might be blessed? I should... uh, make a nuisance of myself in society, stir up some agitation because of my faith. Some of you might be thinking that's what I was doing at Georgia Tech, like I was asking for it, you know? You get out there passing out Bibles. and Well, no and no. Uh, Peter warns us about being a meddler in verse 15, and, and we'll get to that in a second. But Peter here, he's just following Jesus' teaching. Matthew 5.11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Rejoice and be glad. That's the exact phrase that Peter uses in verse 13. It's a counter-cultural, even counter-human perspective. To be glad, to consider it a blessing when you are hated and despised for your faith in Christ. Peter gives us the reason. He says, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So when you are insulted for Christ, God rests upon you. Something unseen yet very real is happening for your spiritual good. Take all the curses and indignities that you receive because you've you've stood up for Christ and you put those in, in view of your great God who defends you and they're nothing, they're nothing. Those insults cannot dislodge the blessing of God's presence that is with you. In fact, they confirm that it's there. Peter here, he might be hearkening back to Isaiah 11. Uh, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So that's talking about the Messiah still to come, that the Spirit will rest upon him. But that prophecy has now been fulfilled. Christ has come. And now the Spirit that rested upon Jesus rests upon believers that bear his name. So the blessing is incalculable. God is faithful to provide grace when we suffer for his sake. And Christian history is abounding with stories of God's people being provided supernatural strength to endure the fires of persecution. So don't be surprised. Don't be consumed with anxiety. We have many reasons to rejoice. Second point, don't suffer for sin, but for Christ. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. You see how those sins, they kind of cascade down in intensity. The first two are are criminal. I don't think Peter was saying here that murder and theft were actually occurring in the church. I think he's being rhetorical to make it clear the difference between suffering for Christ and suffering for wrongdoing. That said, there may have been meddlers in the churches he was writing. Uh, Meddlers can't keep their noses out of other people's affairs. Uh, They're busybodies, they're mischief makers, they pester and annoy, they lack social graces, they're tactless. Peter knows how people work. He he is a realist. He knows that that we can rationalize our suffering as being, quote, Christian suffering, when really we're just meddling and getting what we deserve. He says, "Don't, don't suffer for that reason. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. He's already told us that. Not all suffering by religious groups who claim to follow Christ is actually a a sharing in the sufferings of Christ. I think of uh, Westboro Baptist Church, if you've heard of them. Um, They actually rejoice over the disdain the culture has for them when they stand out there with their vulgar signs at funerals. It's a confirmation for them that they're doing God's will. That's how a lot of cults tend to work. But that's just twisted sin cloaked in righteousness. They have no grounds to rejoice because they have no real gospel. They're not suffering for Christ. And when I hear about stuff like that, I just, I just want to run the other way. You know, we may be inescapably the aroma of death to unbelievers, but we don't have to be bad breath to them. You know? So don't be a meddler. Be a good neighbor. Distinguish yourself as someone who loves and serves, and when you speak about Christ, think about what you say. Be winsome and pleasant. Peter said earlier, um, do it with gentleness and respect. Remember that? 
let the gospel be offensive on its own terms. And it is offensive. We're not trying to soften the rough edges of the gospel here. <clears throat> but we, we don't, we don't want to suffer for sin. We want to suffer for Christ. So that if suffering does come back your way, you'll be, you'll be suffering for him, not for your own foolishness. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So the term Christian, uh, as far as I can tell, it's only used by opponents in the New Testament, except here. You remember King Agrippa's question to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? So the term, it simply meant follower of Christ. And here we're told not to be ashamed to bear that title. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Chapter 2, verse 6. So if you have been socially rejected for your faith in Christ, remember who you follow. Jesus is the most rejected man in history. He is the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So you follow in the footsteps of of the one whose name is above every other name, the one to whom every knee will one day bow, and one day his glory, his full glory will be revealed, and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the one we follow. So Peter says, don't be ashamed when you suffer for that name. Glorify God in that name. So three seemingly incongruous themes run through this passage. Suffering, joy, and glory. And and we, you know, we it's a mystery. And they they undeniably hold together. Believers in the Lord Jesus know that they do. We we may be hard pressed to explain why suffering for the glory of God would, would give us such joy. But nevertheless, that's the case, isn't it? That's the case. Remember the apostles in the, in the book of Acts, they've been in prison, they've been hauled before the authorities, they've been beaten. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Tom, <clears throat> Tom told me about a time with Carol. Uh, she was a teenager, she was on a school bus, and somebody spit on her because she was a Christian. She had a little pin on her shirt that said, uh, Today, today may be the day, something like that. It could be today. And somebody said, what's, what's that all about? And she said, it's about Jesus. It, Jesus could come back today. And she was mocked. You might say, well, that's just silly kid stuff. But I wouldn't minimize what happened to Carol. Number one, faith is precious to God, so don't disparage it. Secondly, that stuff is on a trajectory. You know, just imagine, fast forward 20 years later, what it might look like to be spit upon in your workplace for your faith in Christ. What does it mean to suffer as a Christian? What does it look like? Why does it happen? Why would unbelievers insult Christians in the first place? They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. When you silently do not participate in sin, it implies condemnation of that sin. Their consciences are provoked, and so they attack you. Christians in Peter's day, they wouldn't participate in these public festivals because they were drunken revelries, and you had to worship the emperor, you had to venerate the gods, all of which was considered standard behavior of a good citizen at that time. So think, what is considered, increasingly so, 
as standard behavior for a good citizen in our time. We hold to a biblical sexual ethic that God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. We believe marriage is between one man and one woman for life and that God's gift of sex is is to be enjoyed in that context alone. Our culture now says that such thinking is toxic to relationships, that it is detrimental to society. And so we are being verbally abused. People talk about you behind your back or to your face, and there's this pressure to conform that gets more bold-faced year by year. There is now an unspoken litmus test for public office and for high positions in, in corporations. If you're not on the right side of this revolution, you're out. And Peter says, yeah, yeah, you're suffering as a Christian. Don't be ashamed. Glorify God. Don't suffer for your sin. Suffer for Christ. What you're experiencing, he says, is part of God's judgment that leaves no one untouched. This word judgment, it's a broad term that refers to both good and bad evaluations, both discipline and condemnation. For believers, it's a purifying judgment. I've already said that. Remember, this is a refining test. So it's not punitive. It's purifying. It's a refining fire like gold is refined. We know this judgment will not result in condemnation for believers because verse 18 says the righteous will be saved. But our salvation does come with difficulty. That's how we ought to understand that phrase, if the righteous is scarcely saved, it doesn't mean that we're, we're barely saved. It means we're saved in the midst of suffering. So, so being a faithful Christian is not a walk in the park. Remember how Paul, he was stoned, he was dragged out of the city, they thought he was dead, but he stands back up, goes back in, starts preaching, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So that's the journey to heaven. That's what it's going to look like through many tribulations. So the judgment begins at the household of God. Household might be better translated as house there, which should trigger in our minds temple. Uh, people, uh, Peter's already referred to the church as a spiritual house. He's likely uh, thinking of Malachi and Ezekiel here. Uh, in Ezekiel, we see God sending divine executioners into Jerusalem. God says, begin at my sanctuary. The righteous, they, they have a mark on their foreheads and they're spared, but, but the wicked are slaughtered. In Malachi, God's messenger comes to the temple. It says, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. But if you keep reading, you see that the judgment destroys the wicked in judgment. So Peter, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If the people of God need purifying, what will happen to those who don't believe? If the purifying judgment brings such anguish to God's people, what will the condemnation of unbelievers be like? Paul tells the Thessalonians that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. 
So people may insult us, but they will have to open up their mouths again and give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. If you're not a Christian here, this this may sound like a bunch of crazed fire and brimstone kind of talk, but take heed. God, God is not mocked. There is a dreadful coming judgment. And I can only say, fly to Christ. He is your only refuge in this coming storm. And we'll go with you because Jesus is our only refuge as well. We'll just go together to Christ in view of this coming judgment. Finally, in the fiery trial of persecution, we entrust ourselves to God. We can do that because we know our suffering is according to God's will. Nothing can befall us apart from God's hands. We're not the victims of arbitrary fate. Isn't that comforting? When we suffer, we can be comforted knowing that things are not spinning out of control. If God is governing this trial, then it has a limited intensity and duration that is established by God himself, not the persecutor. Our God is a faithful creator. He is both the ruling sovereign over all creation and completely worthy of our trust. We can cast ourselves entirely on him. God knows that your life is precious. So give it to him for safekeeping. And trust yourself to him. Into your hands I commit my spirit, Jesus said. The little phrase, while doing good, there at the end, is an echo of last week's sermon. Uh, When you suffer for Christ, entrust yourself to God and keep up your obligations to one another. Show hospitality to one another. Keep loving one another earnestly. You know, when we hurt, we, become, we, we tend to become so self-absorbed that we, we, we leave off our, our obligations to each other. We throw off the duties to other people. But continuing to do good shows that you're trusting God in the trial. What do you do? Living as an exile in a hostile world at the end of all things? Well, you get to work loving each other in the church And you have somebody over for dinner. That's what you do. So friends, be encouraged. The fiery trial of persecution is inevitable in these last days. We've been told in advance. Nothing strange is going on. It's actually a reason for rejoicing. So let's suffer for Christ, not for sin. Not for our own foolishness. This fiery trial may be painful. But soon His glory will be revealed. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me?